going to read this morning from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, beginning at verse 11. We have here what's called the parable of the prodigal son. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus gives three parables all about the finding of the lost sinner. The first emphasizes the seeking shepherd who goes out until he finds the sheep. The second, the in a similar vein, the woman and her lost coin and the joy when she finds the sheep. And then in the third, really the experience of being found, the experience of being found. And that's uh, what we're going to talk about this morning as we talk about conversion. So Luke chapter 15, we'll begin reading at verse 11. And he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me, and he divided unto him his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain or gladly have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. And no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants." And he arose and came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his elder brother was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants, and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry, and would not go in. Therefore came his father out, and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid, that I might make merry with my friends." But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet or appropriate that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. We read that far in the Holy and Inspired Word of God on page 19 in the back of the Psalter. We consider this morning Lord's Day 33. Page 19, Lord's Day 33, beginning at question 88. 
of how many parts doth the true conversion of man consist of two parts, of the mortification of the old and the quickening of the new man. What is the mortification of the old man? It is a sincere sorrow of heart that we have provoked God by our sins, and more and more to hate and flee from them. What is the quickening of the new man? It is a sincere joy of heart in God through Christ, and with love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. But what are good works? Only those which proceed from a true faith, are performed according to the law of God and to His glory, and not such as are founded on our imaginations or the institutions of men. The question for us to answer this morning, beloved, is what is true conversion? And we want to answer that question not just from a biblical and a theological point of view, but this is answered from the point of view of the experience of the child of God, your experience as a believer. What does conversion look like in my life? Is my conversion true conversion? Or to put it another way, am I really saved? That question makes us a little uncomfortable at first, perhaps because we cannot identify a day or hour in which we are converted, and that's the common way that evangelicalism today speaks of conversion, a day and an hour. Or perhaps we're uncomfortable with this because it seems too subjective. I'm asking myself the question whether I'm converted. Isn't conversion God's turning of me, and shouldn't He receive the glory in my conversion? And those are concerns with some legitimacy. But it can also be an uncomfortable question, what is true conversion? Because you're harboring sin in your life. And you don't want that exposed. You don't want to have to turn from it. And this question is confronting to you. So this morning, before we look at this question, what is true conversion, I want to consider a number of reasons that it's a good question for us to ask, and it's a good question for us to ask of ourselves personally. What is true conversion, and am I truly converted? First, it's a good question to ask because there are obviously false conversions. These are what the Scriptures call having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Or What Jesus refers to in His parable of the different kinds of soils when He says that there are some who receive the Word with joy, but when persecution and affliction come, or when the cares of this earthly life come, they don't persevere in that joy. False conversions. You can have a conversion of feelings, but it's not a conversion of heart and life. Under emotional pressure, you say, yes, I believe the gospel, or I accept Jesus. Emotional. Or you can have a, a conversion of outward conduct, what we might call a moral conversion, so that a person is saved from bad habits in their life, from drugs and alcohol, and their behavior is changed, but that itself is not a proof of true conversion. Or you can have 
a grave which is decorated with flowers, but is still full of dead men's bones. And that's what a false conversion is. This is also an important question because the true Christian will often wrestle with the question of assurance. And that question of assurance comes in our lives in the daily struggle with sin because we find ourselves fighting again and again against the same besetting sins. With the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, the good that I would, I do not, the evil that I would not, that I do. And then Satan comes to us and he says to us, your conversion is false. You would be over these sins. And he points to inconsistencies in our life and asks the question, who do, you claim, who do you think you are that you claim to be a child of God? And it's good for us to, to talk about true conversion so that we can this morning focus on the evidences of grace in the life of those who are truly converted. And that's the experience of conversion that's talked about here in the Catechism. It's also important for us to talk about conversion because we should improve on our conversion. And this points to the fact that conversion is an ongoing process in the life of the child of God, what we might refer to as progressive sanctification. None of us should think as Christians that we have arrived because we are converted. We shouldn't think of conversion as simply something in the past that has happened to us, but it is the daily process of repentance and faith, and these are things that we should, as Christians, want to grow in. And so this morning, as we look at what conversion is, your prayer and mine should be, Lord, give me growth in these things in my life. There's always room for growth, even for those who are firmly assured of their salvation. The importance of this subject is that the truth here is the perseverance, the truth of the perseverance of the saints, that we persevere through doubts, failures, temptations, that we persevere in the assurance that we are truly converted children of God. So let's consider this morning what is true conversion. Notice with me first its connected parts, then second its true experience, and then third its daily fruit. The Catechism says there are two parts. Of how many parts doth the true conversion of man consist? Of two parts. And then those two parts are identified as the mortification of the old man, that is, putting to death the old man of sin, and the quickening of the new man, that is, giving life or reviving the new man, quickening of the new man. And then that's further described in the Catechism this way, as sorrow over sin and joy in the Lord. And what I want to emphasize at the beginning here is that these two aspects or parts of True conversion are connected. They always belong together. They are different ideas. They do become evident, and they are experienced in different ways, but we should never think of them as separate from one another. And perhaps the word parts that is used in the catechism is a little misleading. It can give the idea of two separate things. 
No, these are two aspects of one and the same thing. We don't move on from mortifying the old man to quickening the new man. We don't move on from sorrow over sin to joy in Jesus Christ. But conversion is all our life long having a sorrow over sin and all our life long finding joy in Jesus Christ. Rejoice in the Lord always. And it is conversion is a daily mortifying of the flesh and the deeds of the flesh, putting to death sin, and every day being quickened and renewed by the Spirit of Jesus Christ into the life and fellowship of Jesus Christ. And it's important that we remember or see that these two things are together because it's when we separate them that we have what we could call counterfeit or false conversions or doubts will come into our lives. Dividing these two gives the idea that once you're converted, you can move on from repentance and sorrow over sin. When first you were converted, you grieved over your sin, but now you can simply be happy and joyful, and conversion is viewed as something that happened in the past. That's not biblical conversion. It's a process till the day I come to glory. Perhaps this illustration helps. If, if I'm driving a car and I take a wrong turn and I head for many miles down a road that takes me far away from my destination, this is the way of the sinner going away from God, and then somebody tells me, you've taken a wrong turn, you should go back. Fixing what I've done is not simply turning the car around 180 degrees so that I'm headed back, but it's actually going back. And that's the Christian life, not just turning once, but moving in the direction of God. And so conversion is a change of lifestyle and a lifelong turning and repentance unto God. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, the Apostle Paul is speaking to believers, and this is what he says, Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 22 that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man. That's the mortifying of the old man, which he says is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. And that ye be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. He's speaking to believers and he says, you have to put off the old man and you must put on the new man. And then he explains that in very real, practical ways in verse 25. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. So you put off a sin, lying, and you put on truth. And that comes out in your daily conduct. And the Apostle Paul in this section is of, in Ephesians is addressing specific sins in the congregation at Ephesus, the sins of the tongue. Another one that he addresses just after that is the sin of theft. And you have the same thing. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor working with his hands. So you put off laziness, you put off stealing, and you put on labor and work. And so this comes to expression in our daily lives in very real ways. And you can think of other descriptions in Scripture that help us to understand conversion this way. 
Conversion is like running a race, like an athlete pressing toward the mark, and that's described in Hebrews 12 as laying aside the sin that so easily besets us and looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, or in Philippians chapter 2, working out our own salvation with fear and trembling, or in 2 Peter 1, making your calling and election sure. And so we should think of conversion not in two parts, but as the ongoing mortifying and quickening. And one of the reasons for us to do that is for our joy and our experience in salvation. There is a teaching which sees these as different stages and really tells Christians, stay there in stage one. Sorrow over sin. And that creates a defeated and an anxious Christian who's always fearing the judgment of God, always focusing on his own misery and sin, never rejoicing in salvation, never finding joy in the Lord, instead having a fear of hell and never delighting in heaven, saying amen to be being a partaker of the corruption that's ours in Adam, but never speaking of God as their father, never speaking of redemption through Jesus Christ as their own. The catechism never means to say that kind of thing. We're not dealing with two stages that follow each other, but the response of faith that is present in the life of the child of God at once, simultaneously both. The dying of the old man, the quickening of the new man. So as we grieve over sin, we find our joy and delight in God. I read the parable of the prodigal son in order to demonstrate this. This is a parable, we could say, of conversion, a parable of repentance, a parable of being found, and being found in this way, that when the shepherd finds us, we repent of our sins, and we turn from sins, and we turn to God. And that's what's described here in the conversion of the prodigal son. In verse 17, it said, it's put this way, He came to himself. And that's actually one of the biblical ideas of conversion. Something changed in his mind. Conversion is a change of mind about yourself, and conversion is a turning away from sin. He came to himself. And that coming to himself is described in the parable, both in the negative and the positive, both in the hatred of sin and in delight in God. So a little later when he comes to his father, he says to his father, I have sinned against heaven in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. He understands his sin. He's grieving over the, the depths of his sin. But with that is a delight in who his father is and a delight in his father's house. He says in verse 17, How many hired servants of my father have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. When he came to himself, when he was converted, what happened? Not only did he come to see the depths of his sin, sinned against God, heaven, and in thy sight, but he also realized there's a privilege and a joy that I've been missing in my father's home. And it was that longing for 
for a place in father's house. How good my father was, how ungrateful I am as a son. And he returned and said, I'm not even worthy to be called your son, but I want to be in your house. And there was that delight in his father that was part of his repentance. So think of Paul's words in Romans chapter 7. He says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? There is a, a sorrow over sin, but that's not without joy. He says, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. And when he says, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. His grief over sin is also a joy in God. I said those two things are simultaneous in the life of God in the life of the child of God. And so grief over sin is, we might say, produced by joy in God. And that's important not just for, for our assurance. We wouldn't grieve. We cannot have joy without grieving over sin. But it's also important in the struggles that we have against sin in our lives from day to day. The main thing in our struggle against sin, the important thing is this, that you delight in God, that you delight in the gospel. In Nehemiah, it's put this way, the joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. What temptation are you facing? Is it a heart sin of jealousy or covetousness or anger or selfishness? Are these sins of the lips in which you speak evil of others and you gossip and slander? Are there sins that have to do with lust, money, greed, sexual gratification? We have to hate sin, yes, but... Are you delighting in the Lord? You see, we can come to these tempting situations and dissect the sin itself and set up all kinds of barriers and restraints against sin in our lives. But is our heart delighting in the Lord? Are we in love with the Savior? The joy of the Lord is my strength. What's going to keep me from sin? What's going to keep me from tempting situations? What's going to keep me from evil words that destroy the body of Jesus Christ? What's going to keep me from harming others by my sin? Delight, joy in the Lord. And so think of these two contrasting situations. David, when he fell into temptation... David had become quite satisfied with himself. It was the time when the kings went out to war, but David had decided, I've arrived. I don't need to war anymore. And so he sat on his palace in the cool of the day, on the roof of his palace in the cool of the day, as his men were out at war. He, took, he, 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 he rested and he took ease in his established kingdom. He was delighting in what he'd accomplished. There was pride. He wasn't delighting in the Lord. And so when he was tempted, he was drawn into sin. And then the opposite is Joseph, who 
How old was he? 17 years old. Joseph, who in Potiphar's house, despite trials and troubles and, and God, as it were, seeming far from him, knew the presence of God, delighted in his God. And this is, this is true of all of Joseph's life. At the end of his life, he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He knew the presence of God within in all of his life and all the circumstances of his life. So he says to Potiphar's wife, how can I do this thing and sin against God? He delighted in the presence of the Lord. And we should look at ourselves, especially in our struggles with sin, for a healthy mixture, a healthy mixture of sorrow and joy, of grief over sin and repentance, as well as love for God and delight in Him. And what that really describes for us is the true experience of conversion. It's an experience not just in one instance at one time, but it's the experience of the normal Christian life. And that's what's described for us here in the Catechism when it asks, what is the mortification of the old man and what is the quickening of the new man? This is not answered in some kind of abstract theological way, but this is answered from the point of view of your experience as a Christian. What does it mean to mortify, to kill, to put to death the old man? What does it mean to quicken, to revive, to give life to the new man? And it answers it with words that speak to our experience. This is how you experience conversion in your life. The old man dies this way. Sincere sorrow of heart that we have provoked God by our sins and more and more to hate and to flee from them. Notice the words there. Sorrow, hatred, and fleeing. That's the experience of the Christian who's converted. Sorrow, Hatred and fleeing. This sorrow is not just grief over sin in a general sense or grief over the consequences of sin that come into our lives. You can find that kind of sorrow anywhere in the world. This was Judas. He grieved over his sin and he went out and he hung himself. This is Ahab. He grieved over his sin and he went softly. And you have the same thing certainly in the society in which we live today, a world that rejoices, a world that grieves over brokenness, destruction in society, which results from broken homes and broken families. And they grieve. But true sorrow is a sorrow towards God. It takes Him into account, His law, His holiness, His Word. And so the prodigal son says, I have sinned before heaven and in thy sight. Or David in Psalm 51 puts it this way, against thee, thee only, have I sinned. And we ask, how can he say that? Didn't he sin against Uriah? Didn't he sin against Bathsheba? But David realizes that ultimately his sin is before God, and he confesses the corruption of his nature I'm evil and born in sin. 
And so in contrast to Judah, Judas, who went out and hung himself, there's Peter, who went out and he wept bitterly. Those were tears of sorrow. What's described in 2 Corinthians 7 this way, that godly sorrow works repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. Sorrow. Hatred. You hate your sin? Do you recoil at perversion? At promiscuity? At the evil of the society around us? And now, when you hate sin, do you hate your own sin? As you, as it were, are repulsed by what is on display in society today. Do you see that same kind of recoiling at your own sin? At what's in your own heart by nature? The old man, you hate the deeds of the flesh. Hatred means intolerance. I cannot endure it. I loathe it. Can you say with Paul, the evil that I would not? Is that your will against sin? Sorrow, hatred. Those are the experiences of conversion. And then, Fleeing, fleeing from sin. This is the opposite to looking for sin. This is being aware of sin. This is viewing sin as a stalking enemy who comes against us. The Bible says, flee fornication. The psalmist prays in Psalm 19 that God would show to him his secret sins, the errors of his heart. He wants to know the early risings of sin in his heart. And this applies to heart sins. Do you flee from the besetting sins of your heart? Anger and envy and hatred. You remember when Cain was angry. God didn't receive his sacrifice. And so he was angry. And then God came to him and said, Cain, if you've done well, you'll be accepted. And if not, your anger means this, that sin is lying at the door like a lion ready to pounce. And it will have dominion over you. You will succumb. Are you afraid of sin? Do you flee from sin? We should be more afraid of sin than of death itself. You thought about that? More afraid of sin than death itself. Death does not inevitably lead to hell. But sin does. We should be more afraid of sin than death itself. That's the mortifying of the old man. Maybe you ask yourself, how do I deal with sin in my life? And here it is. Sorrow, hatred, fleeing. 
But there are two parts, and I said these two parts are simultaneous, they're connected. And so the other question is, what is the quickening of the new man from the point of view of our experience? And that word quicken means to make alive. And if you think about it, there's a way in which we can feed our sinful lusts in our old man. And we can make, as it were, the old man's legs stronger. We can give sin a place. We can do what Ephesians 4 says, and that is give foothold to the devil. We must flee from sin and quicken, give life to the new man. And that's not just described here as a new way of living, but it's described again from the point of view of our experience, our thinking and our feeling, our joy, our love, and our delight, joy, love, and delight. It is sincere joy of heart in God through Christ with love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. This is the experience of true conversion, joy, love, and delight. A sincere joy in God through Christ. You see, something of what the apostles saw, the disciples saw in Jesus Christ in John 1, we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, and they delighted in the presence of the Savior. This is the new man. If you're risen with Christ, or since you're risen with Christ, Colossians chapter 3, seek the things above where Christ sits at the right hand of God. We, we taste and see that the Lord is good, Psalm 34. And so we rejoice in Him. We delight to do His will. We're glad to go to the house of God. It's a joy that has a depth in us, a joy that gives strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength, a joy that can never be taken away, that's eternal in the soul. Joy in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Keep coming back to joy in the Lord. And along with joy is love and delight. Love for God. Delight to do the will of God. And of course that comes out in obedience, which is not an obedience from a slavish fear of the judgment of God but obedience that's motivated by love and gratitude to God. I delight to do thy will, O God. So these are the experiences and the evidences of true conversion in the life of the child of God, and not, again, just as a one-time thing, but the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life is a life of sorrow and joy. The normal Christian life is a life of hatred for sin and love for God. The normal Christian life is a life of fleeing from sin and delighting to live according to the commandments of God. And then it's more, isn't it, than just experience. Conversion is to turn. And so you think of the words of Jesus to the woman caught in adultery. He says, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Or you can think of the parables of the talents and the different 
amounts of talents that were given to, distributed to the different servants, and they went out and they used those talents. But there was that one who hid his talent in the ground, and he wouldn't use it. The quickening of the new man, the living of the Christian life, the daily repenting and turning and finding joy in God, that's the Christian life. And that's pointed to in the Catechism when it says we delight uh, in all good works. And then it asks us, what are good works? Very quickly, three things about good works. The Catechism talks first about the root and the source of good works. They come, they proceed from a true faith. And that means they're sincere. They're not just from, they're not just external. We've been looking together in the Sermon, at the, Mount, the Sermon on the Mount in the contrast between the Pharisees and the citizens of the kingdom. They love to be seen of men. And now here, proceed from a true faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. This gets at our motivation. Are we thankful? And faith has to do with that, doesn't it? What are we believing? We're believing Jesus Christ. We're believing the gospel. We're putting our faith in what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. And as we believe in Jesus Christ, how can we have anything but a heart of gratitude and of love that wants to live in obedience to Him. So the root and the source is true faith. The standard is the law of God. They're performed according to the law of God. And that means more than just the Ten Commandments. It means that we live biblical lives as Christians. There are some wrong standards. The wrong standards might be tradition. They might be what your friends or peers expect of you. Perhaps sincerity. Sincerity itself is not a standard to follow. Luther was a very sincere monk. No, the standard is the Word of God. As Luther later said, my conscience is bound by the Word of God, not the institutions and the ordinances and the imaginations of man. So the root and the source is faith. The standard is God's Word. And the goal, the purpose, is God's glory. And we must always have this in view. God made us to glorify Him. This is man's chief end, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. This is where all of our life should be directed as Christians who hate sin and who love God, living to His glory. And so the one who is truly renewed is a new man. Because he's a new creature, he doesn't do his own thing. No, he believes that he belongs, body and soul, life and death, to his faithful Savior, and that he's here as his possession to serve him. Because he loves his Savior and is thankful for the incredible things that Christ has accomplished for him in his salvation, he keeps his commandments. If you love me, Jesus says, keep my commandments. And because he knows his own sin, in humility of heart before God, he will not only live to serve God, 
but he lived to serve. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom. And Jesus says, this is how you are to live with one another. Not for self-advancement, but God's glory in a life of love that serves others. This morning we ask the question, not just what is true conversion, but do I see the evidences of true conversion, grace, God's grace, in my life? Amen. Father, we pray that by the grace of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Word, we may be quickened in the new man to live a life of sorrow and joy, sorrow over sin, joy in Jesus Christ, of hatred and love, hatred for sin, and love and delight in thy will. And we pray, Lord, that this may be true, not only for our perseverance in faith, but for the glory of thy name through us. And then we remember the words of Jesus. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, that you have love one for another. And you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine that men may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. So help us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.